Hi everyone, and welcome back to the third episode of Making It Basic, a biology podcast. My name is Natalie, and we will be reviewing cellular energetics, which includes energy, enzymes, cellular respiration, and photosynthesis. Organisms require energy to live, but we do not spontaneously take in energy. To break down large molecules such as polysaccharides, there first is required input of energy called activation energy. Activation energy is the amount of energy needed to destabilize the bonds of a molecule, such as the covalent bond, and move the reaction over what is called an energy hill. Biological catalysts such as enzymes are substances that reduce this activation energy and increase the rate of a reaction. Enzymes are known to be reaction-specific in that each enzyme works with a specific substrate. A substrate is what interacts with an enzyme. The place where the substrate fits into the enzyme is called the active site. There are two models of how enzyme mechanisms work. The simplistic of the two is called the lock and key model and is like a key fitting into a lock. The more accurate model of enzyme action, however, is with the induced fit model. This model illustrates how when the substrate binds to the enzyme, it creates a change in the shape of the enzyme, leading to a tighter fit. This change is known as a conformational change. The end result of the reaction after the substrate reaches the active site is called the product. Although each enzyme is reaction specific, such that the enzyme sucrase can only break down the sugar sucrose, a single enzyme molecule can catalyze thousands or more reactions per second. Most enzymes are proteins, so factors such as temperature, pH, salinity, as well as enzyme concentration, substrate concentration, activators, and inhibitors can all affect enzyme function. Each enzyme has its own optimal temperature, or the temperature at which a procedure is best carried out. For human enzymes, the typical range is between 35 and 40 degrees Celsius. When there is a heat increase beyond the optimum temperature range, the bonds in the enzyme and the bonds between the enzyme and the substrate become disrupted. The enzyme becomes what is known as denatured, as it loses its 3D structure. When a protein is denatured, secondary and tertiary structures are altered, but the peptide bonds of the primary structure between the amino acids are left intact. Since all the structural levels of the protein determine its function, the protein can no longer perform its function once it has been denatured. Now moving on to cold temperature with enzymes. Cold temperature is when students can believe some misconceptions, so just be careful here. At very cold temperatures, molecules move more slowly, reducing the frequency of enzyme substrate collisions and therefore decreasing enzyme activity. Cold temperatures do not denature proteins though. pH also plays a role in enzyme function. Similar to temperature, changes in the pH outside of an enzyme's optimal range disrupt bonds and the overall 3D shape. For human enzymes, the typical pH should be around 6 to 8. Nevertheless, the pH levels depend on localized conditions because pepsin, for instance, which is a digestive enzyme in the stomach, like the pH around 2 to 3, which is very acidic. Additionally, salt concentration is imperative to enzyme function as well. Enzymes are intolerant of extreme solidity, as the Dead Sea is known as its name for a good reason. It wasn't randomly named. Now that we have talked about denaturation, let's move on to talk about the impact of enzyme and substrate concentration. Let's start with enzyme concentration. As enzyme concentration increases, the reaction rate increases as well because there are more collisions. This makes sense because if you add more enzymes, there will be more things the substrates can interact with. 
However, at some point, the reaction rate will level off because there are only so many substrates that can interact with that many enzymes. At this point, the substrate is now known as the limiting factor. Substrate concentration can be viewed with a similar perspective to enzyme concentration. If one were to increase the amount of substrate, the reaction rate will also increase because more substrate means more collisions. At a certain point, the reaction rate will level off because all the enzymes will have their active site engaged. This means that the enzymes are saturated. There are no other enzymes that the substrate can bind to. If you were to graph substrate or enzyme concentration along the x-axis and the reaction rate on the y-axis, the curve would look like a lowercase r that eventually levels off. Now let's talk about the fun stuff. There are compounds that help enzymes, while there are some that regulate enzymes and reduce enzymatic activity. Cofactors and coenzymes help enzymes because they regulate, control, and adjust how fast these chemical reactions occur. In regards to enzyme inhibition, there are four main types. Competitive inhibition, non-competitive inhibition, irreversible inhibition, and feedback inhibition. A competitive inhibitor is when an inhibitor and a substrate, in a way, compete for the active site. Nevertheless, one can overcome this issue by increasing the substrate concentration because it demonstrates simple probability. Saturate the solution with so many substrates that it outcompetes the inhibitor for the active site. Non-competitive inhibition is when the inhibitor binds to the allosteric site, a site other than the active site. When the inhibitor binds to the allosteric site, there is a shape change and the enzyme becomes inactive. Irreversible inhibition is very self-explanatory because this is when an inhibitor permanently binds to an enzyme either call the competitor when it binds to the active site and allosteric when it permanently binds to the allosteric site. The last thing to talk about for enzyme inhibitors is feedback inhibition. This is when a product in one step is used as a reactant in the next, and the final step is used as an inhibitor. For instance, say that substance A is a reactant of product B, then that product B is used as a reactant to make the product C. However, C can be used as an inhibitor to stop the production of A, so then the process of A to B to C is halted. Feedback inhibition is often used so that there is no unnecessary accumulation of product. Moving on to cellular respiration. Cellular respiration is a catabolic process in which sugar and oxygen are converted into water, carbon dioxide, and energy. The formula for the reaction is C6H12 O6 plus 6O2 to yield 6H2O plus 6CO2. There are two types of cellular respiration, aerobic meaning with oxygen and anaerobic meaning without oxygen. Let's start with the aerobic one, the process that requires oxygen. Basically, cellular respiration follows the steps of glycolysis to pyruvate oxidation to the Krebs cycle to the electron transport chain. Let's start in the cytoplasm with glycolysis. Glycolysis means sugar splitting, and that is exactly what you're doing. You take one of the reactants, glucose, and split the molecule to yield two pyruvates, which is a three-carbon molecule, and you also yield some water too. In the reaction, four ATP molecules are formed, and two ATP molecules are used, so there is a net gain of two ATP molecules in glycolysis. 
The two pyruvate molecules we just made from this process are then oxidized, meaning it loses electrons to form the two-carbon molecule acetyl-CoA. And there are two of these acetyl-CoAs. We are now in the mitochondrial matrix. This is where the Krebs cycle occurs. In this cycle, acetyl-CoA is completely stripped of its carbons, so that means we have completely used up our reactant glucose. The carbons are then used to create one of the products, CO2. Also in the Krebs cycle, the NADH plus and its lower quality cousin FAD are both reduced to create NADH and FADH2. These two substances will be used later on in the electron transport chain. Therefore, the net products of the Krebs cycle include four CO2 molecules, six NADH, two FADH2, and two ATP. These products are made with the two cycles of the Krebs cycle. This is because we had two acetyl-CoAs to start off with, and it is essential to remember that the cycle runs twice for every glucose molecule. Glycolysis, pyruvate oxidation, and the Krebs cycle all use substrate-level phosphorylation to make our quite sad amount of ATP. We were taking phosphates and putting them on the ADP to form ATP. So how do we get the bulk of our ATP? We get a majority of our ATP by oxidative phosphorylation, not substrate phosphorylation. Okay, now we're moving on to the electron transport chain. So at this point, we have a bunch of NADH and FADH2 lying from the Krebs cycle. We can use these high electron carriers to create a proton gradient. When oxidized, meaning they lose electrons, NADH and FADH2 become NAD plus and FAD respectively. As we oxidize these substances, proton accumulation begins to occur in the intermembrane space of the mitochondria. As we're building this proton gradient, one of our reactants, oxygen, is used to be a final electron acceptor to create our product of water. Moreover, through chemiosmosis, the protons are pumped through ATP synthase so that ADP becomes ATP. All in all, the process of aerobic cellular respiration is roughly 34 to 36 ATP molecules, carbon dioxide, and water. Let's quickly talk about anaerobic respiration, which requires no oxygen. To do this, organisms undergo fermentation, either lactic acid fermentation or alcohol fermentation. This process is basically glycolysis. In lactic acid fermentation, pyruvate from glycolysis changes to lactic acid. This type of fermentation is carried out by the bacteria in yogurt and made by your own muscle cells. In alcoholic fermentation, pyruvate changes to alcohol and carbon dioxide. This type of fermentation is carried out by yeast and some bacteria, and is also how you can make some of your favorite breads. Finally, we're on to photosynthesis, a process done by autotrophs, such as plants and algae. The formula is the opposite of cellular respiration, being 6CO2 plus 6H2O to yield C6H12O6 glucose plus 6O2. Just like cellular respiration, you do not need to memorize the intermediaries, just follow where the electrons and protons go. Autotrophs have two steps to their process of photosynthesis. First, they need to capture or obtain the energy with the light-dependent reactions, and then they store the energy into glucose with the Calvin cycle. So first, we can look into a chloroplast because the light-dependent reactions occur inside the thylakoid membrane. When light strikes a leaf, 
an electron becomes excited, meaning that it has a higher energy state. And now, this electron can go through an electron transport chain with a proton gradient in the thylakoid space, all in all pretty similar to that of cellular respiration. The excited electrons first flow through photosystem 2, and then photosystem 1. 2 goes before 1 because that is just the order that the photosystems were discovered. The excited electron then flows to NADH to create NADPH. The new addition of the D just means dinucleotide phosphate. Also at the light-dependent reactions during photolysis, the reactant water is split to H plus and O2 to form oxygen gas, O2, and the H plus is used to create a proton gradient. Now moving on to the Calvin cycle, which occurs in the stroma. Not to be confused with the stoma of the plant, however. The stroma is the cytoplasmic-like fluid in where the Calvin cycle occurs. The stoma is an opening for gas exchange. Anyways, the three main steps of the Calvin cycle include 1. Carbon fixation, using CO2 from the air to form a sugar. 2. Reduction, where G3P, a 3-carbon sugar, is made. And 3. Regeneration, so the cycle can repeat again. G3P is important because it can make glucose and other organic compounds. As we move through these three steps, we also use ATP and oxidize NADPH, which was from the light-dependent reaction. Also, it is important to note that one glucose molecule equals six cycles in the Calvin cycle. Therefore, from photosynthesis, we have gained sugar, which could be made from G3P, and oxygen from our light-dependent reactions. This review was quite long, but I hope this was helpful in understanding cellular energetics. Thank you for listening.